You're listening to the Outsider Sisters podcast series. This podcast exists to amplify the voices and tell the experiences of women and non-binary persons of colour who grew up or migrated to the UK. Outsider Sisters gives you an uncomfortable snapshot into the everyday shared life experiences of many people of colour living on this small island. In this episode, I speak to Dami Fahimi, who is a photographer and cultural curator. My name is Dami Fahimi. I'm 21 years old and I study at Newcastle University. I am a cultural curator and photo, um, fashion and documentary photographer. And um, I own two businesses, so Journals of Dami and Visuals by JOD, which both are for creating multidimensional representation for minority groups, so Black people, LGBT community, um, focusing on things especially like colorism. And the whole aim is just to kind of let people exist in all types of identities hobbies all that kind of way and basically saying we don't come in one type of way um and that's pretty much what my businesses are founded on okay and what's your um heritage ethnic background so i'm of nigerian heritage um both my parents are nigerian and i was born and raised in england specifically Southwark in southeast london um and then when i was seven we moved to essex and then about a couple of years ago i moved to newcastle to um start university Okay. And what are your experiences of growing up in the UK as a woman of colour? Um, it's been a lot. Um, when I was when I lived in Southwark, um, it was like the whole school was majority black and Asian. So, and in the area I lived in, the flat that we lived in, it was you always saw yourself, and you didn't know at that very young age because I was like seven and under. You didn't really know exactly what black was, but you just saw people that looked like you. You saw. Um, African food shops, Asian shops, hair shops, and you just felt at home. Um, and then my parents um, told me and my brother that we're moving to Essex and it was this great big adventure. But when I got there and I started my first day of school, I was like, if I can remember, like one of three black kids in our entire year. And there were barely any black kids in the entire school. And I just remember sitting down and all the white girls were staring at me. And I think that was the first time when I just felt out of place. And as I got older in primary school, I kind of changed myself to become more palatable to the white girls around me. So I found my heritage at that age to be embarrassing and I didn't want anything to do with it. It was more like being white and British and having straight hair was the way to be and everything else apart from that was just not like good at all um and it wasn't until I started secondary school that that school was a lot more diverse it was in the same area so over the few years chapter 100 became a lot more diverse um so I met my friends there we have an all black girl friendship group and we're all dark-skinned and we're all Nigerian so it was like finally being able to properly really really accept um who I was and how I looked and as I got even older, it was like secondary school, sixth form, so it was very, very diverse. And then as I got to Newcastle's kind of like this revert back to primary school, because even though we had like a massive ACS community and the ACS community is absolutely fantastic at my uni, like they make everyone feel really involved. Um, 
you know, I made a friendship group that all black and LGBT society that we have, you know, my friends all POC, which was a miracle because I was like, I think that year was the most POC people they had the year I started. So it was really easy to just kind of join in. But in the couple of years that I've been there, even though you have your friends, you have your chosen family and stuff like that, everything outside of it, you still felt like an outsider. And it was the first thing I noticed, you know, people would stare at you like they haven't seen a black person before. We had two racial incidents in my first year at uni. So my friends had eggs thrown at them from students at Northumbria and they were saying the N-word at them and the police didn't do anything. They just gave them like, I think they gave them a warning or something. And then the hockey society at my university, they were saying homophobic and racist slurs on video. And then the university blurred out all their faces Mm. and they when the video got published they blurred out all their faces and they said oh we're going to take them out of the season so they they weren't allowed to go to a hockey game but we later found out that this out of season was during Christmas holidays anyway so they wouldn't have been playing so it was just constant microaggressions racism even in my classroom um of like we We've talked about it now, and my film, because I, I study media, film, business. The classes are getting better, and we've had a discussion about the incident that happened. But it was like within my first month at university, they showed a video of lynching, um, <sighs> and there was no trigger warning, and they didn't show any other documentaries by black filmmakers. That was the only thing they saw. So for me, you know, I'm in, I'm like hundreds of miles away from home. I'm in this whole new place, and I just didn't feel accepted. And it was like, every time I'd come back home, I'd get off at King's Cross Station and I'd just see so many black people and then you just felt back at home. And for me, that was like, why, this can't be my entire experience for the rest of my life, constantly holding my breath, trying to, I guess, seem in, in a sense, like safe to white people, like seem as if I'm not threatening. And then when I get home, I can be myself, even though there's nothing threatening about me. It's like, why do you see that? Um, but I think the biggest thing that's definitely probably kept me sane is having, um, my friends around me that look like me or, you know, are LGBT as well. So it's very much like you have these safe spaces, um, as a, as a black woman, um, definitely really important. I've been in Newcastle for 17 years. Wow. Um, yeah, a long time. And when I came here to study and when I came here, my tutor who is Irish, he was, what was, is he's white Irish. And he said to me, you know, you, he'd been here, I think he got here in the 80s, 90s. And he said to me, you will get racial abuse. And I was like, oh, whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. And then like my first month it happened and I just couldn't believe it. Like I just could not, like what, I, I'd never, that had never happened to me. I mean, I'd heard people saying stuff but not aimed at me, but it was the first time I'd ever had any over like abuse yeah, yeah. that I remember and it yeah. broke me like it was just I just started crying like straight away just it was like pure shock 100% because it's like not so much that you're shielded and that doesn't happen down south because it definitely happens oh, yeah, down south it but it's like when it happens to your face and every day it just is like it's almost like it becomes a norm oh yeah and you kind of become desensitized to it but at the same time you're very aware of it well, you, you're hyper aware yeah. more which is even worse you know you're hi- you're expecting it you're always ready for it you know it's like being a woman and you know exactly. a guy walking in, well guys or whatever or that that constant f- threat you're always at 
in in sort of fight mode you're ready for it yeah which is a really exhausting way to be exactly it's absolutely yeah. tiring because you're uh, you know apart from I mean I know you identify as non-binary but you know to to every to look at you you know you are a woman in society so you know you've got that it's almost that ingrained fear that you have of being a woman and then to add in color and then sexuality on top of that it's so true like we were in powerhouse um in year two and this one there was like it's just a lot of especially fetishism as well Mm. so you feel unsafe and then you feel like do people want to be with you just so they can kind of tick a box has having a non-European surname ever been an issue? If so, can you explain and how what this has made you feel? Um, no, so my surname is Farahimi, which is Yoruba, um, which is the tribe my family's from. Um, and it's been... we. My friends and I were having this discussion a few years ago about, you know, there was a discussion on Twitter about how black people would change their name and their surname so they'd get through the interview process. And then, you know, hopefully the goal would be that the, the boss would be so impressed with you that they'll give you the job, even though you changed your name, which is kind of illegal. But I could totally understand the premise of it because there's so much discrimination that people, bosses would just see the name and think I ain't hiring them. Mm-hmm. And it's like, my name is about as Nigerian as it gets. Like my full name is Oluwa Damilola and then Farahimi. And it's like, you know, at the same time, I really want to stay connected to my heritage and my culture and not have to change my name to get forward in life but at the same time it's that thing at the back of your head like because even though I'm self-employed now when I was younger I did apply for a lot of jobs and when you get that rejection you do have that thought at the back of your head that's like Mm -hmm. do you think they rejected me because of my name or because of who I am and you know, you, you kind of have to just think to yourself, like, okay, maybe maybe I just wasn't suited for the job. Maybe that's not the reason, but it does play on your mind. And even like in school, um, teachers would never really make an effort to say my name or because even though Dami is my shortened name, which I, I, I even agree, it's easier to say than my full name every time if you're having a conversation with me, my name came up like 10 times, but it's like, it's not so much. They just, they just say it and it's like, what's, your, what's the shortened version? And it's like, you feel like you're an inconvenience and people will make fun of your surname because my surname isn't even really that hard to say. I can understand my full name, but, you know, it's just as soon you're just sitting there just, you know, maybe 14, 15 years old and you're getting these microaggressions of teachers just not wanting to, to try. And they're like, have you got a different name? Like, can I can I call you Katie or something? And it's like, really? You know, it's you can I just end up being like, I can call me Dami. Dami is what everyone calls me anyway, because it's, I understand the name is long, but to just disregard my name like that, it's, you know, there's so much history and culture and a lot of me is essentially attached to that. And I'm important so that people should make the effort to try and say my name. Um, But yeah, no, not having, I don't have a European name, so that's never really been an issue. But I suppose it's been an issue. What I mean is an issue in terms of, Society has an issue with it, not you as such. I mean, the issue being, as you've said, you know, people want to shorten it. They want to yeah. Europeanize it. That's not a word, but, you know, they want to they yeah. make themselves feel comfortable so they don't have to bother. Yeah. 
Whereas, I mean, my exactly. name, you know, my yeah. name is Chantal Herbert. It's like the whitest European names you can get, like French names. So, and that, but I have that expectation when people, I turn up, people don't understand why I'm not white. <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, especially yeah. when they hear my voice, they think, oh, right, yeah, she's going to be a white girl. And I've had people say to me, oh, I thought you'd be black or you'd be white. I'm like, oh, right, okay, well, yeah. That's great. Well, colonizers made my name the way it is. So um, Herbert was not my family's choice. I'm sure it wasn't Herbert originally. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing people forget. It's like, you know, that there's a reason for This was not my family's choice. This this is my slave name. Exactly. Yeah, or it was my name that was chosen to fit into, most likely it was my slave name, but, you know, some families came across and changed their surnames completely to fit in. Um. So yeah, I don't know any mm. of my heritage. I like yeah. I'm always really jealous of like, you know, especially someone like you that ha- that knows their heritage and knows, you know, what tri- they can trace themselves back to a tribe. It's like, you know, you you when you can't really do that, you feel like you've lost your whole sense of identity. Like like I have no sense no, of I yeah. don't know where my family come from. I don't know we've traced our family history apparently, but I don't know what it is. But it's still that sense of almost like loss. Like I don't have a language. Um you know, I look, how yeah, I look exactly. is not how I feel. Um, can you tell me more yeah. about, like, you know, your work and what you do? Um, okay. Um, if I start with Journals of Dami, because it, it makes mm-hmm. more sense if I start with the, the main business. That kind of started when I was about 13, 14 years old. But it was under a different name. It was Daminella, which was what my <laughs> auntie used to call me. So that that name is very much gone now but um it was because majority of my family live well no actually majority of them live in Nigeria but my mum's side of the family majority of them live in America um in Maryland in Texas so we go to America every year to see the family and in the months when I was in school it was like my blog was a way for them to get in like see what I was doing school trips and stuff because back when you're young you just seem to go on a school trip every month it felt like um so I just had this little blog and then my friends at school saw it and they liked it so it was just kind of nice to have this thing that people liked what I wrote and what I talked about and the little photos I took um and as I got older it just kind of became this like more of a a blog in understanding what a blog was but I still thought people who did blogs probably did it in like their free time and then they had like in quotations a real job because I'd always been raised to believe that not necessarily by my parents because my parents were very supportive of my brothers and mine's creative careers but I mean wider society it was very much that a real job was like a nine to five and you can't be a blogger because or creatives because artists can't be that can't be a career so but it wasn't until about year nine when I did a, a work placement at the Voice magazine and or Voice newspaper in London. And you had all these adults that were writing news stories about, because the Voice newspaper is black owned, so they mostly write about Afro-Caribbean um, news stories. And it was just, I was just in absolute awe. I was like, these people, you know, waking up in the morning, getting their cars and they're coming to write about black people and it's an actual job. And for me, that was just life changing because it's like, this was this is what I want to do. And that's when I started to take my blog like really seriously. So um, I actually interviewed Stephen Lawrence's father. Um, yeah, he was, it was the anniversary of when Stephen Lawrence had died and his dad was setting up the foundation and I was interviewing them for the, for the newspaper, interviewing him for the newspaper. And it was just like, even though I think that was year nine, so I think I was like 14, 
but to me it was like this is what I want to do you know I want it to I want to work for black people I want to create a world or at least an environment for black people to tell their stories um and I just go to blogging events anything networking all that stuff and when I was in sixth form all those years when even when I was younger photography had always been a hobby but it'd never been also something I thought could be a career um so my blogging was doing quite well but um sixth form came first and a levels came first but unfortunately well not unfortunately now because I can look back on it and be happy but I missed out on getting into Newcastle the first time by three marks and I remember they remarked it I had two papers that needed to be remarked the first remark came back no change and then that same summer that I got my A-level grades back, we were on the plane to go see my mom's family in America. And she, my teacher emailed me, I'm so sorry, but there's been no change. And I was just like, Newcastle's been my absolute dream to get into. Now my life just feels like it's not going the way it's supposed to. And I think I really, I was still focusing on my blog because it was a nice distraction, but I felt very much like down about it because it was my media exam that I got a B in and media was the subject that I'd always been really good at and I put so much of my self-worth into the subject being like I'm not good at maths I'm not good at science so humanities is my thing so hopefully I can get an A star in media and when I got a B back for me it was very much like as if because I'm a Christian it was almost as if like God or the universe wasn't was telling me I'm not good enough for this and I shouldn't be doing this um but then I think it was toward like at the end of September when we we're about to come back to the UK the university emailed me saying because I was only three marks away and I got the other two grades that I needed they said I could do a BTEC to make up for the grade I missed as opposed to resitting and if I'd reset my A-levels I would have been I would have been two years behind um because they changed the whole A-level um specification which was so dumb because before if you messed up an exam you could redo it a year later, but now you had to re-retake AS and A-level. So that's two years. And But the university said, if you do this BTEC course, it's only going to last for the year. The BTEC course was in photography. BTECs are amazing. And I, I, was, love, I love BTECs. That's how I got into uni. Oh my gosh. I honestly wish I'd done BTECs instead of A-levels. A-levels are absolute mindless stress. And BTECs just, I felt... Like, not only am I learning, but I was being hands-on. I was able to be with my camera. And I met all these amazing people. And the teachers were so ingrained into it. And it was like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and actually having all that editing and all the photography, because before it was just a hobby. So I'd kind of just turn my camera to do something. And I'm like, oh, this does something. But now I'd realized like, how to use it in manual and all that stuff. And it gave me the confidence to set up a business in photography. So... Once I did start in Newcastle about two years ago now, um, I'd work with the societies, do photography for them if they had events. Um, and my blog kind of went on the back burner because I didn't realise how intense my degree was. So I had time for photography, but blogging and all that stuff, I didn't really. Um, but it wasn't until like last summer, something happened to me and it was like, I started therapy and I just needed a healthy outlet for me and that was um, I used my blogging and my photography together to kind of be like okay um therapy is really really helping me but you can't just do therapy you have to do so many other things and for me that was like okay um let's do a photography campaign for black people 
We're going to talk about black hair and black careers and hopefully inspire the next generation. Because I'm very much obsessed with that in a, in a good way. But kind of being like, I grew up as a dark skinned black person and I know what it feels like to be on the outside so much. So I don't want the next generation to be silenced at all. If there's anything I can do to help, even if it's a little thing. After that, that whole summer, um, for about a week of it, I went to Barcelona with my friends to kind of just clear my head. And I remember saying to myself, like, when I get back to Essex, I'm just going to go ham on all of this and just, you know, really speak about what I went through and help other people. And I think all the experiences I had was just kind of not so much to say, oh, because you got that beat, you're not supposed to be in media. It was more to be like, you needed to do this course to then kind of like a domino effect and you'd have the confidence to do this and do this. And since then, the businesses have just been like just insane. Like we had a NatWest campaign in November, just gone. Um, and we've, I don't know who I'm saying we've, sorry. Um, I've been, we've got three, I think two exhibitions and one competition that we're doing. Um, postponed because of covid but hopefully still happen either this year or next year um and now the biz because of covid um my business model for my photography kind of changed so mm. i started selling my artwork and then people really liked it on shirts so now we're raising money for sister space which is a domestic violence oh, yeah. center for afro-caribbean women um but it's just been like these past few years have just been really wild to from going from that hobby to career and then hopefully once I graduate like full time um but yeah that's I think I can't really remember anything else but yeah you're doing a lot <laughs> yeah no keeping busy is the definitely the best thing for my mental health so yeah and yeah you talked about microaggressions before um could yeah. you just tell me about some sort of just a, a few uh or one or two microaggressions um, that you faced or actual experience of covert racism, um, particularly related to working in the sector that you work in? Okay, yeah. Um, so it would be things like, I remember when I was getting my personal statement checked and I was basically writing about all the stuff that I wanted to achieve within my career. And the teacher was basically like in a really sarcastic tone, like, oh, don't forget us when you get up there. And I think for me, it was just kind of like, why can't black people, black women, you know, shoot for the stars without someone, even if you meant it as a joke, it's still very much like, you know, how much these people have to go through. And if they want to achieve something, have the faith in them. Yeah. And even in, in my career, my career, like, because on Instagram, it's not really bad because, um, you can post something, your followers are there, they follow you because they like you, they like what you post. So it's a bit more of a wholesome space. Like Instagram definitely has its cons, 100%. But in terms of like the way people respond, it's not as bad as it is on Twitter. And oh, yeah, or I Facebook. Post some, <laughs> or for, exactly. Like people just, they can hide behind, you can make it a Twitter account so easily. Um, and you'll just post something like oh black lives matter or you know dark you need to talk about colorism and someone will just send something really horrible to you by a dm or they'll tag you in something um and it'll just kind of be like 
you it happened about a couple of years ago and i used to argue with people on the internet over things that you know shouldn't be argued with like you shouldn't debate someone's existence you know if i post um something about the lgbt plus community or something about black people someone shouldn't then and go and de- like debate like hmm do these people deserve rights do these people deserve the right to life and for me i would spend hours and hours arguing with these people some of which were probably bots anyway which was a complete it was still a waste of my time but it was so it would affect my mental health so bad because it just be like why am i doing any of this if people don't think that i you know matter and stuff like that so it would just be like it would be really constant like nearly every day and just got to a point where i had to tell myself i can't do this i can't argue with people anymore i'm not gonna stop my job but you know i can't argue with someone who's not gonna educate themselves or anything like that so it's gotten better now but you do still you know you just wake up and there'll be someone who will just respond something and you know doubt your career or doubt that your existence matters and it's it does get tiring but that's what therapy's for or talking to your friends is for Um, words have you had said to you before if you mean you don't have to say if you're uncomfortable doing that but you know what what words have you had said to you before um so like the f slur um being called like a monkey the n-word that kind of stuff because I have my profile picture as me like I used to my friends used to find it funny that for like a whole year I'd have memes as my photo on Twitter but it was so people didn't know what I looked like so they couldn't say anything essentially because even though my confidence like my self-confidence and how I look is a lot better back then you know when being dark skin and stuff there's so many things people can poke fun at that really affects you so much so I'd just be like I post the meme as my display picture so people can't really say anything and but yeah I just got to a point yeah now I have my face as it because it's like if you're gonna say anything say it with your chest but mm-hmm. um yeah no those kind of things are there anything that you do that you've st- stopped yourself doing for fear so you know I was, I was talking about like code switching you, are you, yeah. you aware of what it is because I didn't know yeah. what it was until recently I learned this like a few months ago I was like what I didn't even know that was I didn't know that it had a name I was aware that people do things to change to fit the scene that they're yeah. in but I didn't realize it had a name um have you ever noticed yourself doing something like that or you know I'll find that sometimes I'll do it but I'm fearful of like eating bananas in public and I know that's a stupid thing to say but I am fear i fear being called a monkey you know being looked at is there anything that you do or you've been aware of that you do to either make people feel comfortable or to make yourself feel comfortable yeah i think with me especially i don't i'm i'm more aware of it now than i was before so if a typical uni day would be like a few hours of class and then i go for a society event or go meet up with my friends at coffee trader kind of thing but I'd realised my mouth really hurt after class. And, you know, at first I thought, oh, maybe it's just because I'm talking so much and we'd have discussions and because the classes, because I do um, media, film, business, it's very interactive, but then you also have a lot of writing. So you'll be talking a lot and writing a lot. And I'd just be like, oh, my mouth really hurts. And then when I meet up my friends, it's like my voice completely changes. And I'd just be like, oh my gosh. And then you'd learn the word code switching and it's like people will say that they can't understand what I'm saying if I'm not my friends but like people in class they'll be like I don't know what you're saying um so you just kind of change it 
and also the fear of I guess going back to I think what I said at the beginning of um people pe- feeling like people are afraid of you because if I've like right now I've taken my my box my box braids out so I've got really really short kinky hair um absolute 4c hair and I'm just I'm wearing an oversized t-shirt um and shorts so I'd probably like go to Tesco's with my music on and I've got a resting bitch face as well so so people might see me and think oh my god she looks terrifying but I'm probably just listening to pop music and I can't be bothered to smile so but in class it's like you know I change the way I I dress maybe I'd look in the mirror before I leave and I'd be oh gosh no you look a bit you look to this or to that and you know make make your sound your voice sound a bit more um eloquent and stuff and over enunciate and things like that and then you just kind of go home feeling deflated like you put a mask on all day and I think that's what my whole first year was like and then it wasn't until I got to second year when I had a bit more confidence and I was very much like I'm not here to make you feel comfortable. I'm here to be myself and there is nothing scary about me. And black people should be able to dress in any which way and you not immediately just think the worst. And yeah, yeah, so now it's more like um, trying to catch myself if I'm like, okay, you're talking, you're not talking the way you do or wear that top, you love that top. Don't worry about anyone else is going to say kind of thing. And as a a queer non-binary person, have you found that these intersecting factors can be to be an issue in relation to being black? Uh, yeah, I think. Do you mean like um, an like, issue for, I guess, not for you, but for society? You know, has has those intersecting factors, you know, because I'm a I'm a woman, but I'm a queer woman. But I spent a lot of my life dating men. Yeah, I have an eleven-year-old child, but now I have a girlfriend. I had girlfriends in the past, but you know now I am outwardly, as I would say, gay, as opposed to bisexual at the moment. Um, you know, my girlfriend's white. Um, but you know, me being—I've always looked pretty butch, not butch, but you know, yeah. boyish, yeah. I guess. Um, and I've got—I had—I've had short hair. Um, and I found that when I started, I guess, dressing a bit more masculine. So after I, I split up with my kid's dad, I shaved my hair because I really wanted a shaved hair, like have shaved hair, like a hairstyle for years. And my ex was like, I'll dump you if you oh, have gosh. short hair. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, I had like um, a fade. I had like the hair through the middle. Oh, yeah. And then I... Yeah, then I found, you know, I, I'd lost like loads of weight at one point and I, I guess I was really muscly, but I found that then I started getting sexualized a lot by women, straight women. They would rub themselves all over me, um, to ask me, like I had someone to ask me to take them home. Um, so as then a sort of, you know, I got told I looked like Grace Jones. Oh, yeah. So as, yeah. so, you know, as, as a, then a, a black queer looking woman at the time I was still dating men, um, I was then completely fetishized and it added an extra layer to me as opposed to just being, you know, they touched my bum, be like, oh, you know, your bum's amazing. But then I found that it would be women that did that. Straight white women yeah. would do that to me. So have you found that, you know, the way you look and I mean, you, you probably look queer to some people mm-hmm. as in gay, you know, I, I mean, I've not seen what you look, I've seen, I think you had a shaved head, the last picture I've seen of you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But you know, you, you probably fit the criteria of looking gay or queer so have you found that that has an issue 
that intersects with your your skin color? Yeah, actually. Um, I remember when I the very very first time I ever shaved my head. Actually, no, I'd shaved the sides before I shaved the whole head. And my dad, I remember he picked me up from the barbershop and was like, I don't want to tell you this, but you look like a lesbian. And I just remember, because I'm not out to him yet. I'm only out to my mum, my brother, my friends and every, everyone but my dad. Um, so I was just in my head like, oh, if only you knew. But it was like, and then I remember his mum, my grandma, came that same weekend and she was like, oh, you look like an African warrior. And he was just sitting there agreeing. I was like, you were saying that a few days ago. But it's like your whole... It's like you're, he, he would, he's changed his, he doesn't say this anymore, but he said what makes a black woman beautiful is her long hair or her hair, even just, you know, an afro, not even just long, but just having hair, um, braids, anything like that. And for me, it was just kind of like, you know, being non-binary and stuff like that. It's, it's very much feeling this pressure to look the way people want you to, especially as a Nigerian woman, because it's like, I've only been to Nigeria once and that was years ago. And I feel like if I went back now, it'd be like, how, what do I pack? Do I just pack a week full of dresses and stuff? Because if I went as I truly feel comfortable, I don't think that would be received well at all. Like at home, people would just accept it and they'll say things under their breath or whatever. But I know in Nigeria, it would be on steroids. So Mm. it's this kind of, because I do wear dresses if I want to, because you know, I I know what it feels like to be pressured to look a certain way, but nine times out of ten, my idea of comfort is just like tracksuit bottoms and a top. And with my hair, it's like the sides are shaved, and then I've got the top as like this mini afro, so then I can do like ombre ombre braids. I like having that blend of everything, so I can feel comfortable myself. But it's like you kind of because I don't want to talk about the whole black community, but you do kind of feel like you have this pressure to just look a certain way to make them feel comfortable and then when you're in the lgbt community you have a certain way to make them feel comfortable because it's like even though i've got my poc friends in the society it's still majority white and Mm. there's still incidents that happen in the society that's very much like you know racism and, and all that stuff so no matter which way you turn it's kind of like you're to this you're not enough this and it's just like when i dress up and come as myself it's like that should be what we focus on and that should be a good thing essentially yeah and what how what do you feel is the perceived aesthetics of a black woman and how do you think we can deconstruct these perceptions um I think because of my career is very much founded on accepting all time all types of appearances so I don't want to go and say oh we need to demolish the way society has this one way of looking uh, black women because there are black women that look like that and you know they were born that way you know like um like curvy figures and mm. everything that you know our ancestors passed on to us essentially biologically all that kind of stuff and it's like you know you, we can't go and shame these women because they are they're they're black women and they're beautiful and at the same time it's like it's more society's job to be like we need to appreciate all types of black women no matter what way they come and what do you think how do you think we're perceived though what do you think this that perceived aesthetic is you know to me for me uh, you you, when you see a black a perception of a black woman you know they're like that warrior looking so yeah you know how you were saying um or we've got big bums yeah that kind of thing what do you feel is the 
what is your perception of what the perceived aesthetic of a black woman is first yeah definitely like you know big boobs small waist big bum and she's very very strong mentally in that sense where she's you know the strong black woman trope nothing nothing makes her scared um big afro long probably loose curls kind of thing um yeah i think that's it yeah i mean it's almost we have this yeah this paint by number black person Mm. that not realizing that there are many types of black women black men Um, can you describe the feeling of being a black woman um i think i would describe it as gosh no one's ever actually asked me um you've got time to think about it okay um (laughs) I can come back to that question if you like. Yeah. Yes, please. Is it, I think it's okay. a really deep question. I'm not even sure. It is. Yeah. Um, so this was the question. I mean, I, this might not be relevant to you, but um, there are major disparities um, for BAME women in the healthcare system. Um, we're significantly underrepresented in key biomedical research data sets. We risk, um, we've got risks to our health from discrimination and black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth. Mm. Do you have any negative experience of healthcare industry that you feel or know is in relation to your ethnicity? But as I said, this might not be relevant. No, yeah. I saw, when I saw this question, I was like, I got something to say about this. Um, okay. <laughs> my brother, he was diagnosed with great transposition of the arteries, which is basically where your blood pumps the wrong way. Um, oh, okay. He was actually born in Nigeria and then they moved to England. Um, oh, I don't know why I was questioning that. I was like, yeah, no, they, they moved to England and then they had me. And because he's dark skinned, he's a black boy, when he'd be, he'd be running about on the, the playground and then he'd be out of breath. And then eventually the teachers were like, oh, you should probably take Demi to the hospital. Something seems wrong with him. And had he been born white, they would have realised that his lips would have been blue, his skin would have been blue, but because he's dark skinned, his lips are quite dark, they never realised. And this surgery was very brand new very experimental most of the kids that they found with it died um I think there was another child in the ward with him that had it and died so I was really young I think I was under one I was under the age of one at the time and I just remember my, one of my parents tell the story it's like it's very scary because you know you just sit in the waiting room and there'll be a parent with you and the parent will be told to come with them and you just know what happened and you just be praying that you know, please don't let it be my son. But he ended up being okay. Um, he's 25 now, has absolutely nothing, like nothing with him. You'd never know he had it. But it was like, you know, the medical profession definitely has a massive responsibility to be able to see these warning signs because he lived, they don't know how he was able to survive to the age of four because most times they realise this is with newborns. So it's an absolute miracle. But, you know, even with skin conditions or mm-hmm. people, just any anything, a, black, a condition that a black person has that they can't recognise because all the medical books are written for white people. So yeah. many people didn't need to die because of, it's, it's as simple as taking the photos and doing the research. But they don't want to, they can't be bothered or they don't have no. the funding to do it. And then it's someone else's responsibility to fund that. But it still comes down to that is why is no one doing that? And that's because they simply don't care. And no, they don't. in our case, don't. we're extremely fortunate because there were so many hurdles, like him being born <clears throat> in Nigeria and then moving here and then realising him being dark skin and black. There's so many things, so many factors that should have been the reason why he died, but it's not. Um, 
but still it was like you know that should have definitely been recognized earlier and then for me I've got a blood condition so I've been I think it was about 27 no 2015 when they realized and I'd always be feeling like I'd, I don't know why but I'd go to the, the doctors a lot as a child and it was just kind of this I, I was a very 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 energetic child but it wasn't until I got into my teens that I started to notice I was a lot more tired and then they realized I had anemia which is very common in the black community but oh, yeah, I was on the severe end so like passing out um extremely heavy periods um heart issues and stuff like that and they just prescribed me iron tablets and I've been on them now for about five years and they've done nothing so it was like I've just recently had a blood test a few days ago because I'm supposed to get one every three months and I can't tell you how many times I've been to the doctors almost crying just being like I feel like there's something else because it doesn't make sense because I know people with anemia and they feel tired they might pass out but the extent to which I have it it's like I would sometimes have to miss class because I physically can't get out of bed I can't go to I can't do my work that kind of thing and it's when my career is so hectic or just even once to go see your friends and you can't because you're tired and then you feel like you're letting them down it's just this doesn't sound like the life of a healthy 21 year old so to me it was like I feel like there's something wrong with me so because they knew I had heavy periods, they were like, okay, we're going to give you this pill. Hopefully it'll stop your periods and then that should stop everything else. But I ended up prolonging my period from five days to 14. And I've never felt like, the way I felt then was just utterly terrible. And now it's just gone to the point where, you know, having to, thinking about going private and just, you know, can you guys just do some different type of test tell me if it's something else um maybe get i think it was endometriosis that's called and get tested for that as well because i heard the wait list for that is unbelievable i remember i got into this argument with this a white boy at my school and he loved to play devil's advocate and Mm. i remember because we did media studies together media would have a lot of debate so it kind of be me versus him and it just got to a point where i'm like why are you doing this and then he got a Twitter account and he'd we'd be arguing on that. And I remember there was this, um, yeah, it was when I was at uni, actually. And, you know, somehow the, the conversation, it, it was talking about the university used to do this um, blind date thing in the newspaper. So they pair two people together, they go on a date and then they talk about it in the newspaper. And the girl was with a guy who wanted a traditionalist wife. A lot of the things that he said was very sexist and she was like a feminist. So in the article that had been written, she was basically, she basically said that it got to a point where I had to pretend to go into someone's house just so I could get away from him. And I remember posting it and being like, this is what women have to go through just to get away from a guy who makes them feel uncomfortable. And it's like, that's, there's so many levels to it, to having to get your friend to call you and say there's an emergency, having to leave just because you feel unsafe. And it's like, we shouldn't have to do that. Someone should just be able to respect the boundaries of knowing when yep. something they're saying isn't okay. And I was basically talking about that. And he was just like, oh, a guy should be able to say whatever I want to say. And it's not that bad. And um and then I don't know how but the conversation somehow got onto race I really this was like two years ago and yeah he, I, it got to a point where he was just like well I can't learn if you don't teach me 
And I'm like, but you, did you not just, we spent, he, he went to my secondary school as well. So at that point, it'd been seven years. And I'm like, we spent seven years in school where you were being educated by teachers about other stuff. But when it's time for you to do a bit of education about race, it's suddenly my responsibility. And it just made me feel like really crummy because for a while it's like, oh my gosh, is it my responsibility to go and, you know, tell him, oh, this is why racism is bad, that kind of thing. But then I was just like, no, Google was free. And it's just... Books, you can go to the library, learn for free. Books, documentaries, film, everything. Yeah, YouTube's free. Go on there and watch some documentaries. Exactly. Like nearly everyone has a phone these days, or at least if you don't, the library, anything. Yeah. And it's just... You know. Well, that that sort of brings me on to my question of like, what are your thoughts about patriarchy and how this affects uh, women of colour? I think it's just <laughs> there's there's no there's so many levels to it, and it really benefits nobody but men themselves. Um, and it's like you know, when I was younger and I didn't know what the word I'd never heard of the word patriarchy, but I knew what it felt like to be a victim of it, and it was like. Mm-hmm. You know, during Christmas time, your place was to be in the kitchen with the aunties while the men were in the living room and you get them a drink or you give them a bowl of water so they can wash their hands before they have Ebba or anything like that. Um, And it's just, it would just continue. Like now it's just people or men even or anyone, anyone who benefits from using patriarchy for themselves against other people. It's very much this, you know, changing the world to it's just yeah changing the world so that there's more victims essentially so having people who don't like um what was something that happened i remember they were making new laws about abortion and it was all men and it's like yeah people who have wounds should be the people who make the decision about this not guys all white men at that as well. exactly so it's it's just so many levels to it because women yeah, we um, we are the victims of patriarchy. And then you have black women who then become the victims of, I guess you could say like, um, you know, like white feminist, the racist form of it. They then come on us, they weaponize their tears. And then you've got white men who are abusing patriarchy and their race. And it's, it's just very much like, it's so exhausting because it's just, you know, even though I'm non-binary, I know how I look and I know how I come across and the, the conversations and the spaces that I'm in. And it's just the things people would, the men would just say. And it's just like, this just doesn't feel right. Like, that's why I'm so grateful to have spaces where, you know, people are just, you know, educating themselves and being inclusive and kind to each other. And then you you walk out the door of your friend's house and then everyone's just everything but um yeah no definitely not a fan of it <laughs> yeah <laughs> me neither yeah um do you feel that um you're ever racially profiled yeah um gosh it feels like everything's just been happening these past few days my doctor's appointment and then I went to go get um some hair dye um I think two days ago and the shop clerk was following me about and it's just like, I'm not going to steal anything because I just want to get the dye and leave. 
but you just feel and they'd be they'd be doing stuff that just didn't seem real like he'd just be he'd get a bottle he'd read the bottle he'd put the bottle back and then he'd get another bottle and then he'd look at me and I'm just like what do you really think I'm gonna because I can't run so you'd probably be able to chase me down if I was gonna steal something um but not even in the hair shops it's like my local Tesco's my brother about a year ago he went in there came back from the gym it was pretty cold so he had a hoodie on and everything and we've lived in Essex now for about a decade and that Tesco's been there even before we moved there and Mm -hmm. he was just in the aisles and then they had this tannoy that said you know if you steal anything we will report you to the police and in the decade that we've lived there that's never happened and I just remember him coming home and telling my parents and we're like what the actual hell that has never happened to anyone we've never heard that ever and it's just like people just they just see you and they just assume the worst and it's like even if you if you were gonna steal something that's not great you know theft theft isn't good but it still comes down to that putting making people feel like you're trying to put them in their place and make them feel Mm -hmm. like they're less important and kind of put them into a box and be like you look like this therefore you are going to steal therefore we have to put these procedures in place but you don't even know this person you know yeah it sounds weird but do you ever keep your receipts when you're leaving just in case all the time and when i chuck them away i chuck them away when i leave i'm really scared that they're going to stop me yeah no i keep it all the way till i get home like like my filing is just because my mum does it and then I started doing it. So I'd have like different envelopes for every month and then put them all into a year. And it's just that thought at the back of the head, like they're just going to stop you and be like, can I see that you bought that? And then they just take the entire receipt and it's just like, I'm just going to keep it. I was actually listening to a podcast this morning and they're talking about, um, I think is it Perry Edwards? In oh yes. Yes, of course. Yeah. She's got a documentary coming out and or came out, I can't remember, but it was, there was a lot of discussion about on Twitter and it was very much this, you'd have black men that wouldn't be protecting dark-skinned black women. So you'd have dark-skinned black women say, oh, I was bullied for being too dark. And then you'd have some black man or a light-skinned black woman come in and say, you know, oh, stop trying to silence us or stop trying to silence them. You know, you guys are... Again, this whole femininity thing, making us feel like we're not, you know, women enough or however we identify. And then it's, it's almost like if you're light skinned, then you're feminine. If you're dark skinned, you're a man kind of thing. And it's like, you know, why is no one protecting us but That's ourselves? It, it? You've got even celebrities and like Stormzy just, and stuff, like laughing about comparing like black women to apes, like dark skinned women. Yeah. And... That's the thing, like they will apologize and everything but you apologize and then you move on and you get on with your life but that's still us who has to kind of internalize that and kind of have these almost traumatic flashbacks to things that happened at school so i'd have colorist so many colorist experiences so like when i was younger i had these like these box braids that look like um locks um and they're quite thick and there was another boy in my school who had locks and people would say I look like him and you know I remember in primary school we were learning to do I can't remember it was like it was like some really old dance from like the 20s the 1920s and because my teacher said you look more like a boy so we're gonna let Emily um lead and Emily was a light-skinned black girl and she was like you know she had the really loose curls and 
she looked more feminine and to me that was just like because i back then i was a girly girl like i wore dresses all the time pink was my favorite color you could you wouldn't catch me in jeans ever um so that for me i was like eight at the time and it was just like what what's what makes me me? look boyish what is it what my dark skin i had pigtails exactly i had pigtails not saying that femininity has to look in one way but i guess society's idea of femininity i was embodying that and that still felt like i'm i look you're just telling a little black girl that she looks like a boy and that's not great so um for me it was just like as you get older and then you see these celebrities having their old tweets be brought up and yeah you can apologize and you can move on with your life but it's the dark-skinned black women that have to go through that and have to see that and we're the ones who actually mentally have to process Mm -hmm. that not you you just said it you thought it's a joke but it's It's not not at all all. and why do you think like that and my school my nickname i used to have little braids and then one boy decided that I looked like Coolio, and that was my nickname through school, Coolio. Wow! Like so, yeah, I look like a middle-aged black man because <laughs> of a hairstyle. It's just exactly. They're just yeah, they don't get it. It's just I don't even understand because it's literally just a joke yeah, to them, it. and it's like you laugh along with them because if you don't laugh, mm. you're gonna cry. And it's then they just laugh, stop laughing, stop crying. It's just a joke. And then just feel invalidated. But when you get older, you start to realise, like, that wasn't okay. Do you think it's impacted your mental health? Oh, definitely. Like, the the way I used to look in the mirror, I, all the African, even today, they still do, the African and Asian hair shops, they would sell bleaching creams. And I remember there was a really popular one in my area. And she had, like, this bleaching cream that was, like, five pounds. And I had five pounds and I remember looking at it and the first thought in my head was like, if I use this, I'm going to be pretty. And I just remember in year nine, my confidence was just in the trash. Like it couldn't get any lower than that. And I'd hate the way I looked. Whenever I I post on Instagram, I'd always like (laughs) increase the brightness all the way to the top or Snapchat filters, anything to make me not look like the way I did. And it wasn't until my best mate came towards the end of year nine she's also dark-skinned because i was the darkest darkest of the friendship group but she's dark, a little bit darker than me so it's kind of like us two together and even though all my friends in the group are brown and dark-skinned it was like we were still on the very much end of the spectrum so she would i remember she'd send me stuff on instagram of dark-skinned women being praised or pages devoted just for dark-skinned women and i just started to look like because on YouTube, people would make, like, um, parodies. So they'd get black men, put them in wigs, and then they'd have, a, like, a light-skinned woman as herself and the dark-skinned black man slash woman friend. And the dark-skinned black woman slash friend would be the undesirable one. She's really loud and, yeah, just physically and everything she'd do just seem undesirable. But then the light-skinned friend would be very feminine and everyone would want her. And we'd watch those videos and we'd find it funny but as you got older, you start to realise this isn't funny because this is supposed to be me. And having that contrast to what my friend was sending me, it was just so refreshing because it was just these pages of so many dark-skinned women, all different types of sizes, looks, everything. And people in the comments would just be like, oh, you're so beautiful. And I'm like, I've never seen or heard any of this before. And, you know, um, I went away on a summer camp with my friends 
and my confidence just like that was the summer I actually came out as well so that summer was just like very freeing and I felt so much more confident I started sixth form and I was very I, I also during sixth form I had short hair so it was very much like going against every boundary society is set for me from every single direction and just being whatever I wanted it to be it's like I'm not gonna lighten my skin tone to make anyone happy and you know whoever I date or become friends with if they've got a problem with how I look then you're not supposed to be in my life and that was a very hard lesson to learn because I felt like it was my responsibility to make other people feel comfortable but then I realized like you're not asking for too much to ask people to treat you with respect and for me that was like mind-blowing but um yeah now it's like I still do have days where you know I do feel a bit undesirable or I'd be like I wish not not, with colorism and stuff I don't wish I was light-skinned anymore like I've definitely healed that part of me it's more to do with being black in the LGBT community Mm. because it's like people will definitely fetishize you and I've been in like an abusive relationship where that happened a lot and it's just like now you just have this constant thought in the back of my head like if I date outside my race is this person honestly liking me for me or because of how I look like and yeah though that definitely does play on your mind because it's like I've kind of put dating on the back burner now so I can like focus on myself and therapy and stuff like that because the last relationship I was in like ended really badly like (laughs) restraining orders and stuff like that and it was because my experience with because she was white and racism and stuff like that I never thought that racism and abuse could come from someone I was dating I always thought it'd be a stranger so I never really saw the warning signs I'd ignore it and it wasn't until like it ended and stuff like that I was very much like you know, I need to take some time away from all of that so I can see what I want in a person, yeah. be more cautious and look after myself as well. Were you fetishised in the relationship? Were you fetishised by her? Yeah, a lot. Like, it, it'd be stuff like she'd want to see me with really, like, a wig and curly hair. Um, she, oh, God, there was this one time we were driving and she asked me, we were talking about, you know, other black people that call white people mm. the N-word, like my N-word kind of thing, like a friendship thing. And she was like, why don't you do that? And I'm like, I'm not going to call you that. Because she was just, the whole black culture, she was very focused on. And it just, like, she was so focused on it. And we were supposed to go on a trip. And when I, it was supposed to, I think we were supposed to go to LA because she wanted to do something in rap. Like, as I look back on it now, I just I can't help but laugh. But at the time, it was like, that was what was going on. And I, when I got home that summer, last summer, just gone, I was, like, telling my friends and family about it. And they're like, this was an abusive relationship. You, you know, you need help and kind of thing. And that's when I told her, like, I ain't going with you. And, you know, she even got even more abusive. And it was just telling her that I wasn't going on the trip. Um, and... It was just very much looking at how she she views black people because it was just kind of this, like, you're indisposable. I can talk to you. I can treat you how any way that I want to. Um, and it was, like, me having to remind myself, like, nobody should be able to call you these names or treat you this way. Um, 
but yeah it just it it was pardon it's disgusting absolutely disgusting like i was like in the beginning stage of the therapy it just took so much for me to unlearn that i didn't like no one deserves to go through that and it's just it's one layer of being in a relationship and it being abusive and then it's another layer of it being the power dynamic and the racist dynamic of it all um but yeah i think the thing that angered her the most was that she didn't get the flight ticket money back because she was supposed i don't know why she was just like she said um i should pay her the money back for her ticket um even though i never paid i paid for my ticket she paid for her ticket and she just somehow had it in her head that i should pay her back and i was like okay well you're clearly clearly losing it right now so i'm just gonna block and trying to get over my life and yeah that just didn't happen it was just very much this like cat and dog chase for the whole better part of the year like you you on tv especially you'd see white women being abused in tv shows but you'd never see it happen to black women because of this mm-hmm. whole strong black women trope so if the man wasn't treating her right she'd just be like i'm leaving and that was it and i didn't feel like i could do that because i wasn't confident enough to do that so it wasn't until like uh i think july june july yeah july just gone i was able to get a restraining order because it was still going on to that but it was very much just like why can't you respect a black woman's boundaries or respect a woman or anyone else for that matter to understand when they say no um but yeah for me that was very much like in terms of the whole dynamic of a relationship is how do you navigate that as a black person safely especially a young black person yeah how do you navigate that it's exactly it definitely comes at the moment it comes with age more so you know you you learn boundaries and you learn how to say no and that things are okay as you get older yeah um because you get more confidence and you you learn more I think younger people now you have much more access to things that I didn't even have access to you know you have access to the internet you have access to things like Instagram it's kind of a double-edged sword on the one hand you've got a lot more negative mental health things coming at you um but you also have the ability to educate yourself much more so um I, I would never would have been this awoken like you are at your age um what are you like 23 24 21 20 20 oh 21 that's it 21 sorry yeah I mean I would never have even had the emotional intelligence to understand what you're talking to me about now yeah but that comes through you being able to educate yourself from a very young age you know even having things like Instagram and seeing positive black role models and being able to send that we never had that it was uh but then we also didn't have the possibility of lightening our skin on an app <laughs> so yeah it's like which is worse being able to educate yourself or being able to live in this social media world where you are bombarded with all of these negative images yeah exactly. it's, a, it's a real hard one it, it plays a lot of it plays a lot of havoc with your mental health exactly my mental health definitely got worse has gotten worse since things like social media exist um oh no 100 because it's just this it's just this ground of yeah, it's not a lot of positive can come from it, but there is a lot oh, of negativity yeah. ingrained in it. There's constant having to show yourself and put yourself out there, and it's like it's nice because you can. Because I've made a lot of friends. Like, funny enough, I was raised on Stranger Danger, but I've made a lot of friends online, mm-hmm. and it can be that beautiful space for you to meet people who are just like you, 
But yeah. on the flip side of that, it can also be a very bad place. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the third episode of the Outsider Sisters podcast. Much thanks to Dami Farhimi for her important and thought-provoking words. And for more information about Dami and this series, please refer to the podcast show notes. Until the next time, thank you for listening to Outsider Sisters, hosted by Chantelle Herbert. <laughs>